Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, please. For our mystery sermon, you've probably already figured out where we're going with this. All right, turning in our Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Now here's how we're going to handle the scripture today. It's going to be like we're going on a mountain drive. I'm the uh, bus driver, and I'm going to be taking you on a mountain drive. We're going to go on this windy, beautiful, scenic drive together through the scriptures, and I'll stop now and then and, and explain a few things to you and give you some background. And But we're going to go through the whole drive Then we're gonna before we ever get to the outline, and then when we get to the top of the mountain, we're going to get out of the bus and we're going to look back. And this is one of those that you can look down and see where you came from. And then we're going to look back on these passages and then pull out of them what hopefully God wants to teach us today. Okay? So let me just begin by reading the passage. So look with me, Luke chapter 18, verse 18. We're going to look at two that are very familiar to you, the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. And we're going to put them side by side, just as last week we we looked at James and John, Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? And then how he answered their request. And then Bartimaeus, the blind beggar, his request to Jesus, Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? And how he answered Bartimaeus. So I put those two together. Today I'm going to put two other ones together. The whole passage just seemed to me to fit together. So, chapter 18, verse 18. And a certain ruler questioned Jesus. Now, Matthew and Mark record this as well. Matthew tells us that he is young. So uh, Luke tells us that he is a ruler, and in a few verses he says that he's very rich. So put all that together, and that's why we refer to him as the rich, young ruler. So he comes to Jesus, and he said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? To a Jewish person of his day, that would have been a perfectly sensible question. However, it would have betrayed some misunderstandings of, of how you're saved, how you inherit eternal life. But there was more to it than that. Jesus detected there was, there was some wrong things, there was some wrong thinking in the man's heart that led to that question. And that's why Jesus responded to him like this. Verse 19, Jesus said to him, why do you, Stop a second. Why do you call me good? Historians tell us that rabbis were hardly ever referred to in this way. This was not a common, and you'll see it in the rest of the Gospels, this is the only place you see that kind of uh, good teacher. Usually it's Rabboni, or Master, or Lord. But adding this good is just something's wrong there, and Jesus sees that. 
And so Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, he is not denying that he is God, and he's not denying that he is good. He's simply saying, think about what you're saying. And so, once he kind of at least maybe gets the young man to stop and sober up a little bit, I don't know if he's being flippant, I don't know if he's flattering Jesus, I don't know what he's doing, but he's got something wrong in his mind. And Jesus detects that right away. So stop a second. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. And now he begins to answer his question, but in a very interesting way. He says, you know the commandments. The guy asked, what must I do? You know the commandments. Do not commit. Now look at these five commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. Are these horizontally focused commandments? Are they dealing with other people? Or are they vertical commandments dealing with God? Which one are these five? They're horizontal, aren't they? Don't steal, don't, you know. He doesn't mention the last commandment about coveting, which some commentators make a lot of because that's what it ends up the, the original Euler is really struggling with. But I, I'm not sure about that. What he's struggling with way more is the vertical first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so, he, but it's just interesting the way Jesus deals with this. He he mentions the horizontal to draw out the obvious problem he has with the vertical. And so here's the man's response, verse 21. All these things I have kept from my youth. Now, you can probably right there see how off that is in your thinking, because even an Old Testament Jew should have understood really by now that I can't obey all of these commandments perfectly. If, if he understood the depth of the commandments, if he understood what was behind the commandments and what's really in our hearts that cause us to sin in these ways, they would realize that I break them somehow, sometimes. But anyway, he, he feels he's pretty religious, he's pretty moral, and he is. He's probably a really good young man. And when Jesus heard, verse 22, so now, now Jesus knows what the issue is. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack. Now hold on to that thought, one thing you lack. Sometimes people read this and think, this is what everybody lacks. And the response that everybody should have to to Jesus is to sell everything that we have and give it to the poor and just have nothing. Some Christians, and maybe God's calling them to do that, But don't do that unless God's calling you to do that. So just hold on to your thoughts of how you're supposed to respond to this until we wrap things up. okay? But to that young man, Jesus said, one thing you lack. So in order to get at that one thing, to satisfy the one thing that you lack, he says to sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and then you shall have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. So what choice did he make? Verse 23, when he heard these things, he became very sad. Matthew and Mark tell us that he went away very sad. He went away grieved. Here, we're just told that he was very sad, very disappointed, because he was extremely rich, 
And when push came to shove, he was not willing to give up his things. So Jesus looked at him. Now, I believe he looked at him because Mark and, Mark and uh, Matthew tell us that he went away. I think he looked at him as he was walking away, seems to me. And he says to everybody else, maybe the guy heard it, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easy for, easier for a camel, and this is all he means by it. Some, some again, commentators look back and say, well, there must have been a gate. Or, and I think 400 years later, there was a gate called the Eye of the Needle. And only a cam- the only way a camel could get in is if he takes all his baggage. Yeah, that preach is great, but at that time it didn't even exist. All Jesus is doing is using exaggeration or hyperbole, and he's just making a point. He's saying it is easier for a camel, this big animal, to go through the eye of a needle. They had sewing needles, just like we do. So what's the point? Impossible. It's hard. It's harder for a rich man to go through the... uh, uh, It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now this was a shock to Peter and the other disciples. Because in their mindset then was that if a person was a good Jewish, religious, God-believing, Bible-believing, church-going person, then they were blessed. And there's some truth to that, as we're going to see in a bit. Okay? But they, for them, but they tended to look at rich people to think they were the, they were the best people. Or otherwise God wouldn't be blessing them like that. So this was really a shock to Peter. And so Peter said, verse 28, uh, he's looking at his own life. He's saying, behold, we have left our own, literally our own things. Those of you who remember the word ta, we're not supposed to just look at our own ta, our own things, our stuff, our shoes, our toys, our coat, our clothes, our money, our homes, our cars, our, our, the stuff that's ours. Okay. Peter said, we have left ours. We did what you just told that young man. We were fishing with dad, and you said, you and Andrew, come and follow me. And we left our nets behind us. We left everything. Peter was married. He left it all. So Peter is saying, I've done this, and I've followed you. Now Jesus gives him some encouraging words. Verse 29. We're on our mountain drive, remember? We're just going verse by verse. He said, truly I say to you, there's no one who has done that. No one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is another one of those general promises That if you follow Jesus, you get more than you had before. You get more than what you gave up. That's a general truth. Before I was a Christian, how many friends did I have? Not that many. I had a few. Uh, How many family members did I have? I had a pretty big family, but not that many. When When you're not a Christian, it's easy to have us versus them and not... You know, you might break a lot of relationships because who cares? They're, that's them. And so you, but you've got your little huddle. The largest funerals 
are typically, in a big funeral in a community like ours is about 250 people. So you got about 250 people in your life that, that care. And money-wise, yeah, you might, you might make money. You might think you are making even more money because some of those wacko Christians, you know, they give a whole bunch to the church and at least I get to keep mine. I can invest in my boat or my golf clubs or, or whatever. And so when I became a Christian, however, I had to make this choice. He did not tell me to sell absolutely everything. He did not tell me to leave my wife or to leave my family. He sort of told me to leave my broader family because of our religious background. I kind of had to turn my back on that, and that caused some tension for a while. But look at what he's given me. I could go to Timbuktu tonight. And I could meet a person and say, and they they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. And say, oh, you're a Christian? I'm a Christian too. We would have immediate brotherly love together. We could talk about God and Jesus right away. I have brothers and sisters all over the world. I've got all of you that I pray for and that pray for me. You've got, and you know this, if you're a Christian, you've got fellowship. You've got, and if you deal with what we're going to, kind of also ultimately talk about today, you're going to find yourself more prosperous, more successful, typically, than before you were a Christian. So I believe that this is a promise. You can't guarantee exactly the specifics of what it's going to look like, but this is a promise that if you follow after Jesus, you're going to get so much more in this life than you ever imagined, plus the guarantee of eternal life. So forever and ever. So let's go back to verse 21 or 31. Okay, now he takes his, the 12 aside. He does. We looked at three places where he did this last year, last week in the Gospel of Mark. He took the 12 and said, Behold, now he's going to predict his death again. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which were written through the prophets about me will be accomplished. For the Son of Man will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. After they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. Now this time they get it, right? Look at the next verse. If you were here last week, we saw how they didn't understand these things. It hadn't happened yet. And they understood none of these things, and this saying was hidden from them. They couldn't see it. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Now he goes into what we studied last week, so we're not going to look at it in detail. But Bartimaeus, this blind beggar, knows that Jesus is coming down the road, so he cries out to him. We studied it last week. Jesus comes to him, but just look at verse 42. Well, the verse just before that, Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. He said, Yes. To Bartimaeus. But watch what he says. And remember this for later. He said, your faith has literally saved you. And in Mark, all those passages we looked at last week, he said, your faith has saved you. So I know he's saved because immediately he regained his sight and began to follow after Jesus, following him as his disciple, glorifying God. And when all the people saw it, they praised God. All right, we're still driving down the road. That was all good. Now let's keep going. Now let's talk about Zacchaeus. 
Most of the kids know this song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. We, we all know the story. So let's, let's look at it again and put it up side by side by the rich young ruler and see what Jesus is trying to teach us here. So he entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. And he was a chief tax collector. What does that mean? How popular was he with the Jewish people? Not at all. He was getting rich, and it says he was very rich. He was a tax gatherer, and he was rich. He was getting rich by managing all of the regular IRS agents that were out there and who were charging taxes from the Jewish people to give to the Roman government. Right away, the Jewish people hate that. Why are they taking our money and giving it to a pagan ruler? You ever feel like this when you're filling out taxes? Like, I don't want my taxes going to support in this or that. Well, imagine how they felt. It was an absolute, uh, it was so against the way it should be among God's people. And so they were, they hated the Romans. They hated tax gatherers who were like traitors. They would take the money from the Jewish people, give it to the Romans, and then everything they charged a little bit extra was theirs. So most of them were frauds. Most of them, you know, defrauded people. Zacchaeus is a chief among a whole bunch of them. So he makes money off the people who are making money off the people. And so he was not a popular guy. Verse 3. And he was trying to see who Jesus was. Why would he do that? Same reason everybody else went out to see who Jesus was. Because he had been doing miracles. They had, everybody had heard about Jesus. So Zacchaeus wanted to see who he was. And he was unable. I know how it is right out here when I go out to watch the homecoming parade. If people are in front of me and they're my, just my height or a little shorter than me, I can't see. I gotta, you got to wiggle around and see you know, to get a view. This was a multitude of people. And Zacchaeus was short. And so he couldn't see. But he's also very resourceful. You don't become a chief tax collector if you don't want something else more than you want your reputation and people's opinion of it. And you're pretty resourceful to get to that place. So he's resourceful too. He was unable because of the crowd. He was small in stature. So what did he do? He did some very kind of... Strange things for an adult man to do. He ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree. That would be a wide-spreading tree. Could have gone right out over the top of the road. But this, So he, he was able to jump up, scurry up this tree like a little squirrel in order to see Jesus, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, by divine revelation, uh, maybe he knew him, Maybe he knew about him. I don't know. But he looks up into the tree, knows his name. And he says, Zacchaeus, verse 5, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. That would have been a, I mean, can you imagine what Zacchaeus was thinking at this point? Well, how did he respond? He hurried, came down, and it's just, this is openness. He received Jesus gladly, rejoicing. And when they saw it, the people around saw it, and they knew who Zacchaeus was. They all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Verse 8, your version might say and, but it's the Greek word but, day, is 
is an adversative. It's, yeah, but unlike them, but Zacchaeus stopped and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. Now, Jesus didn't say, but your problem is, no, no, Zacchaeus, that's not good enough. You've got to give all of it, like I said to the young ruler. He treats everybody differently, uniquely. Okay? But Zacchaeus just opens up. He says, I'm going to give half of what I owe, what I own, to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and he had, I will give back four times as much. In the Old Testament, Leviticus that you just read, everyone with great excitement, you just read through Leviticus, right? As you read it, you saw that if somebody stole something from somebody or defrauded them, they're supposed to give it all back, 100%, plus 20%, plus a fifth. Zacchaeus says, okay, so if you stole $100 from somebody, what do you pay them back? 120 that's restitution. What does Zacchaeus pay them back? I will give them back four times as much. I mean, he's going over the top. He has changed his mind, as you're going to see. He has repented. He is receiving Jesus. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. So he is saved. Salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. And by that, he does not mean that he was of Jewish descent. The rich young ruler was of Jewish descent. So is Zacchaeus, but he's a child of Abraham in the sense of he has now, like Abraham, believed God. And it is credited to him as righteousness. He has become a friend of God. He's a true child of Abraham in the heart because he received Jesus. And then last verse, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Okay, last week we learned that, now listen carefully, the overriding, ultimate, determining factor in how God is going to answer your prayers is not your will, and it's not the intensity of your faith. You, man's will does not God, determine God's action. It is quite the other way around. So the determining ultimate factor in whether God's going to say to you, maybe, uh, James and John, I don't know. That's up to the Father. Maybe, wait. You're going to have to wait and find out. Sometimes he answers our prayers that way. Or if he's going to answer yes, as he did to Bartimaeus, receive your sight. Sometimes he answers no, as he did to Jesus in the garden. But Jesus said, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And so similarly, uh, today we're going to talk about the, the ultimate determining factor in how a person is saved, how Jesus chooses to do that, is determined by God's will. So, so first of all, I need to reveal to you the mystery. What do you think M stands for? Anybody? Yeah. Money. Now, if I'd have told you that, if you'd have seen that in the bulletin when you walked in, then half of you'd be gone right now, right? Oh, no. It's one of those sermons on money. I rarely preach about money. And when I preach about money, it's never going to be so that you give more money to the church. I know there are people, very few, it is very rare. I know of an instance or two 
When someone happened to come in, the subject of money came up, and they have never come back. He preaches about money, or they preach. Oh, he's just like every other church. All they talk about is money. Okay, that's not true. But listen to this. 15% of Jesus' teachings, to line up this whole, all four Gospels, 15% of it, Jesus is talking about money. Take all the parables of Jesus, over 25% of them are about money. Oh, Jesus was really concerned about money. No, he wasn't. He was concerned about what money reveals about us. And we're going to come to that in just a moment. But what I want you to see as we put these, these two things together like we did last week, remember that in the New Testament as well as the Old Testament, God works in mysterious ways. You see that in the Old Testament, don't you? We talked about that. Just let God be God. God is God. We're not. Let God be God. And realize that he does work in mysterious ways. There are all kinds of things about his interaction with the rich young ruler and with Zacchaeus that I could criticize. Jesus, you didn't do it right. But that's ridiculous. And so in a lot of these situations, I came up with a new acronym. If someone, if, if you don't know who's going to play who down at the state tournament or whatever, it'll say what? TBD. What does that mean? To be determined. Okay, I came up with a new acronym. TBDBG. TBD, TBDG. No, TBDB. So if you want to memorize it, here's an easy way to do it. TBDBG. Got it? It means to be determined by God. How's God going to answer your prayer? To be determined, I don't know, by him. How is he going to save that loved one that you're praying for? Is he going to save that loved one that you're praying for? T-B-D-B-G. I don't know. He knows. I just need to pray and do everything that I can do that's in my control. Let him do his thing. And he works in very mysterious ways, as you can see in these two passages right here. Number two, as we now we're at, when we got out of the bus, we're looking back at these two stories. And we see that our attitude towards money, this is why Jesus talks so much about it. Our attitude toward money reveals our attitude toward God. Okay? Matthew six nineteen through 21. Do not, literally, do not treasure. He uses the word treasure twice, which is really sweet. Do not treasure up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But treasure up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Now this is why. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And what that simply means, it's a way of saying, it shows you where your heart's at. You'll know where your heart's at when you look at how you deal with your money and, or your things. Okay? There are so many scripture verses that have to do with this. If you were to continue in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount to verse 24, we read, where Jesus says, nobody can, no one can, it's impossible. No one can serve two masters. You will either hold to the one and despise the other, or you'll love the one, love the one and hate the other. 
You, you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and money. That's what he was confronting with the rich young ruler because that was his problem. He was serving money. And he wanted to serve money and keep it and still inherit eternal life. And he wanted to figure out how, what he could do to make that happen. And Jesus went right to his heart by talking about money. James 4.4 4. James says, James is Jesus' brother, James said, you adulteresses, you're supposed to be married to God and you're acting like you're married to the world. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? And whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God? Mark 12, 43. I'll just read it to you. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. This is Mark 12, 43. He sat down opposite the treasury. So he's going to talk about money. And observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounts to a penny. And calling his disciples, come here, I want to teach you something. He said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they, now listen carefully. This is a question you've got to at least ask yourself. Jesus said, for they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Who was she trusting in? Who were they trusting in? That's the question. And as Jesus dealt with these two people, the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. The subject of money comes up explicitly between Jesus and the ruler. It comes up from Zacchaeus himself when he sees, when he realizes the ramifications of, of being a Christian. And what happened? This is so interesting. The rich young ruler would have been considered an insider. He was a good Jewish Again, he believed in the Bible. He obeyed the commandments. He probably tithed money. The rich young ruler retreated. He just said, I can't do that right now. And the rascal that everybody hated, who was an outsider, he was a Jew, but they didn't consider he was a traitor. They considered him outside. Bartimaeus was considered outsider. This blind beggar, I mean, he's like, the scum of the earth. They're now in. While the rich young ruler walks away. Isn't that fascinating? Just think about it a second. Today, if the rich young ruler would, would ask you that question, what would you say to him? How can I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How, what would you say to him? And you wouldn't be wrong, but think about how Jesus dealt with it. What would you say to him? You would say something like, what must I do? Well, you can't work for it, which we'll see in a moment, but you, you have to do, you have to believe. So we would say what the gospel says, you have to believe 
in Jesus, you have to ask him to forgive your sins. And we would go through the whole thing and he would say, well, I've been doing that my whole life. And we'd say, hallelujah. That's not what Jesus did. So just food for thought. Jesus wants your heart, right? He wants you to ask yourself. You cannot read these passages and look back on them and not at least ask ourselves these questions. The answers may be unique to each one of you, but we have to wrestle with this. We have to. So don't be mad at me because I brought it up. Look at 1 Timothy 6.10. He does not say money is the root of all kinds of evil. He does not say that. Abraham was wealthy. Job was wealthy. David was wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. These people had money. It didn't cause them to be lost. The guy who led me to Christ, my friend, has lots of money. He's a very successful businessman. But he has his heart in the right place when it comes to money. The love of money. You cannot serve. You cannot love. Let me talk about service for just a second. Why do you serve money? Why would, why would someone serve money? If the interest rate goes up from 2.5 to 5% on your annuity, and you have a chance to... Why do you... You're serving your money. You're saying, okay, I better invest it here because I'll get more money at the end of the year, and I want to put it in the bank, and I'm, I'm going to invest in a CD. Right? Those decisions are all made. You're serving your money. That, you have to do that. You have to be wise about managing your money. But the reason you serve money or the reason you serve it if you really love it, is for what it gives you, right? Is everybody with me? Why, why do you serve money? Why do you love your shoes and your toys and your tractors and everything? Why do you do that? Because of what it gives you. It gives you something, right? Okay, why do you serve Jesus? Be careful how you're going to answer this. Why do you serve Jesus? For what he will give you. Amen. You should. That's the way God made you, to serve him for what he will give you. You can't do it yourself. You need him. He will give you everything that you need. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He wants us to come to him and serve him and then allow him to give us his gifts and then rejoice and celebrate and enjoy his gifts. But you can't do both. You can't serve. It's the love of money that is the root of all, so, all different kinds of evil. And some by longing for it, long, that's what your heart's seeking. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you as well. You'll get more. But you have to give all that up. They have wandered away from the faith. And they've pierced themselves with many griefs because they're longing for money. Their goals are for money. What they think will make them happiest is money or the things that money can buy. So, lest anybody here think you're saved by money management, look at Ephesians. Okay, we are saved by grace through faith. If the rich young ruler would have believed Jesus, put his faith in Jesus, 
and just obeyed him and said, I don't care. I want you. I'll sell everything. If he would have done that, he would have been saved by God's grace through his faith in Christ. Okay? Here's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God. God gives repentance. God gives faith. God gives salvation. It's a gift. Jesus said, Jesus, Jesus didn't say, I came, remember, to seek and save the lost. He didn't say, I came to show people how they can save themselves. He didn't say, I came in to teach them how they can be saved. He said, I came to save them. And so we are saved by grace through faith, not, not of yourselves. It's not as a result of works. It's not as a result of selling all your possessions and giving it to the poor. Okay? It's by the faith that might lead someone to do that if Jesus tells you to. So that nobody can boast that I did this. All right. A couple of things. It is so fascinating as we look back, we look down at where we've been, that the ruler sought Jesus and was not saved. Right? And Zacchaeus, I don't think he sought Jesus. I just think he climbed a tree to see Jesus. It wasn't until there's nothing in the text that says anything about Zacchaeus' heart. Nothing. It's when Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come here, I'm going to stay at your house, that it started to happen. That's how Jesus worked in his life. And then he came down and he said, I'm staying, I'm going to cross the barriers, I'm going to come into a sinner's house. Something happened there that flipped the switch for Zacchaeus. And he repented. And he, I'll give, I'll give half, I'll sell, give half to the poor, I'll repay everybody. It's just fascinating, isn't it? So let Jesus be Jesus. Mm. This rich young ruler, good church-going guy, but it is hard. Listen, listen, because some of you are very gifted. Just listen. It is very hard for a gifted person, rich. You might not have tons of money, but you might be good-looking. You might be really smart. You might be able to, you're just, you're just talented in a lot of ways. You might be very successful. And therefore you are very self-confident. It is very hard for that person to admit their need for Jesus. And that's why poor people can tend to be the ones that Jesus was able to minister to more easily. So be careful Look at your wealth. Look at your own self-satisfaction in what you're able to do because if God has made you a certain way. And be careful about that. But your mindset toward money and all these other things flows from your mindset toward God. Now, just before we close, I want to say something about money. This is my opportunity. I, I want to be very careful before I say that you should give 10% of everything that God gives you. That became my conviction when I first became a Christian. I was listening to Christian radio. Please just pray about this. Think about this. Is this, as you look at these two things and have to ask yourself questions about where money fits into all of your everything, 
your heart. I was listening to the Christian radio. I heard that Christians ought to give 10% of, and, and I was instantly convicted. And we started giving 10%, and what that means is 10% off the top. Some of you do this, many of you don't, I think. Okay? I don't know. I don't know what any of you give. I never want to know what any of you give. Because I would never want that to even, I'd be, me be tempted for that to affect, I don't think it would, but to affect my pastoral ministry. So don't feel like, oh, he doesn't, I don't know. I have no idea. But I remember when I was convicted of tithe, Kim, you weren't a Christian quite yet. And I, and I remember coming home and sharing about what I think we need to start doing with our money. And she, I don't think you were on board right away. It was like, God, God, God. Why do we always have to talk about God now? And so it took her a bit. As soon as she became a Christian, she's on board. We taught our kids, give them a dime, little bitty kids, how much immediately goes into the offering Sunday. A penny. When they started getting a little bigger, started getting dollars, 10 cents, a dime. Okay, we would just, get, when we gave them the money, we'd sometimes even give them the penny or give them the extra dime just to teach them the principle. So parents, we talked last week or two weeks ago how important parenting is. Teach this to your kids. They'll just get it. They're not going to fight you on it. They just, this is normal. But it has to be the first fruits. If you choose 1%, it has to be the first fruits. I believe the Bible teaches from the beginning 10% should be a minimum of, for all of God's people to just do. And if you want to go way beyond, I think New Testament Christianity teaches more than 10%. It teaches we should be given everything we can to the poor and, and to God's work. So I'm just putting it out there for you because maybe God will convict you and all of a sudden you'll start tithing and it isn't so that the church gets more money god will provide the church with all the money the church needs but for your own joy and freedom as soon as i came to this understanding i had freedom it's not my money and i'm going to trust god that everything that comes in i'm going to take 10 percent of it for some of you this is like what is he talking about 10% of it right away and give it to the church, to God's work. Okay? Pray about this. I could get, I know I could get some of you up here because you've testified to me that you came to this same conviction. I know some of you could get up here right now and say, God has blessed me. In fact, I used to make this promise. I'll make it again. You try this for a year. If you aren't, if God... Not that he's going to bless you a certain way, but if you regret it after a year, we'll give you your money back. That, and that's never happened. Nobody has come up to us and said, man, I started giving generously and, and you know, God... Anyway, just think about it. Pray about how God wants to manage, how he wants you to manage his money that he gives to you and trust him. That's what faith is. So if that's something God's doing in your heart today, praise God. I could go on and on about this one. Listen, 80% of the people in almost every organization, I'd say it's probably true in most churches, 80% of the people give 20% of the money. 20% of the people give 80% of the money. That's probably true here. If everyone was tithing, I'm not saying we need it. I'm just saying you need it. 
You need to be handling God's money the way he tells you to. To be free and to have joy and freedom. Okay? So, give it some thought. Give it some prayer. I could not ignore the subject of money as I went through these couple of passages. Because money reveals your attitude toward God. Who are you trusting in? Who do you love? What do you love? Let's bow our heads together. If he convicts you in a such and such a way, if he says, this is what you lack, then please, go after it. Pray about it. Obey what you believe God is convicting you of. Just do it. Trust him. He will be faithful. He will provide for you.